Hello, my name is John Malloy, director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, based in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to The Moment. In this series, we try to reimagine our post-pandemic life together after our COVID-19 life apart. You're listening to our special series on polarization, where we ask some of Canada's leading thinkers why we're entering our post-COVID world so divided and can faith play a role in bringing us together. Today we are in conversation with Jonathan Malloy, Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Jonathan, welcome to The Moment. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And I think before going any further, we should probably clear up any confusion. Although they are spelt differently, we do have similar names and we actually share some of the same interests, including the intersection between faith and politics, a subject I know you've written about and studied, including the way in which the evangelical faith of many MPs on Parliament Hill shaped their work. That's, that's quite true, yes. And uh, first, it is, it is good to meet you because after many years of people confusing our names, it's great to have a conversation together about this topic. Uh, and indeed, yeah, I've, uh, I'm a professor of political science at Carleton. I've been uh, studying Canadian politics for many years. And an area of particular interest has been the politics of evangelical Christians in Canada. And so I've been studying that for a while. I've written a number of pieces on that and it's something I continue to follow uh, a fair amount uh, within the broader context of faith and politics in Canada. So I'm very glad to talk about that here today. Well, it's great to have you uh, with us. And, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of your work because I think it uh, takes a very uh, balanced approach, uh, it, a very honest approach to the way in which uh, faith influences a lot of our political leaders. And, uh, you know, I think it's been it's been very refreshing to, to see someone who's uh, uh, jumping in uh, in a way that uh, you know I think looks at both sides of the issue. So so thank you for your for your work with that. But today we're talking about a related topic, but moving a little bit uh, broader perhaps because I wanted to ask you about uh, political polarization. And I think you would agree, as as many would, that as Canada emerges from COVID nineteen, we appear to be a divided nation. Not only are there more extreme views out there. But even those in the middle, and there's still a lot of us still in the middle, but uh, there appears to be a more hostile environment to political competitors. And I wanted to get your take on this perplexing issue. And maybe I'll start with the uh, most basic question. Um, how do you define political polarization? Yeah. Well, you know, the way the way I, def I define it really, and, and this may not be what, how all political scientists do it, but for me, it's, it's the idea really of, of opposites, not just, you know, having different views, but really sort of opposing each other. So, like, you know, to, if I can bend physics a little bit here, sort of opposing polarities. So you're actually repelling each other. You're not just sort of sitting in two different camps, but you're actually actively working against each other, uh, repelling each other uh, further. And unfortunately, that's what I see today in politics in Canada, certainly in the United States, but also in Canada, where we see increasingly, I think, uh, different sides just not just holding different views, but really just almost repelled by each other and having very different conversations, having very different worldviews, sets of facts, uh, values that are, that are going on. And in that way, they're actually, I think they're driving each other apart. They're actually, they're feeding off each other in some ways, but in a way that really sort of just drives each other apart. And so you see 
very limited dialogue, very limited understanding. Instead, you really see sort of each each group becoming kind of more entrenched, digging more in. I think it's because of that I said that kind of those opposites are actually repelling each other. That's how I see political polarization, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, I think it's a wonderful way to, uh, to put it. And obviously, you know, anyone listening to this, their first uh, reaction is going to be the, the trucker's convoy or the, the first thought that comes to mind. And maybe you want to comment on, you know, the, what's happened uh, the early part of this year. But also, are there ways, uh, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that it didn't start with the trucker's convoy, that uh, polarization has been growing and that polarization manifests itself in other ways. So, so you know, it's sort of a two-part question, I guess. Comment on what you've seen over the past uh, a couple of months and, and also where else have you seen it, perhaps in less evident ways? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think I'm thinking Canadian politics. If you want to reflect on polarization, you have to first really, I think, start with with regionalism, region and language in Canada. And that's something I think that's very distinctive about Canadian politics is that, you know, quite often our biggest divides, our biggest cleavages uh, historically have been over region and language. Uh, so you think one thinks first of Quebec and the French language versus uh, the rest of Canada, English-speaking Canada, but also, of course, different parts of Canada. The West certainly uh, has had a long history of feeling really alienated from the rest of the country. Atlantic Canada often feels the same way. The North, including North, Northern Ontario, places like that, uh, they all feel, in a sense, polarized from other parts of the country. And so historically in Canada, if you think about sort of what are the big cleavages, the big divides, you have to, I think you have to go with region and language often uh, overlapping each, each other. And, and because of that, I think we've actually, I think most would agree, we've had limited amounts of other types of polarization in Canada, particularly class polarization, which in many countries, you know, that's kind of, that's been the big historical uh, uh, clashes between working and upper class or whatever, what have you. Uh, that's been more muted in Canada. Other sort of you know, urban rural divides and things like that have been more muted because the predominance of regionalism has been where our big clashes have, have been. Uh, but certainly what we are seeing um, in recent uh, times here in Canada is, uh, is a rise of polarization that is similar to other countries. And it's one that it doesn't really have a, a great name. You can call it sort of populism versus the elites is the best there. Um, but and it was certainly what you saw in the trucker convoy for sure was a segment of Canada uh, coming up, often camping out here in Ottawa, where, where, where I am, um, revolting against against certain types of elites, certainly intellectual media elites, um, some political elites, some economic elites. Um, and that's and uh, and that's something you see, of course, similar, of course, in the United States with the rise of Donald Trump and the people that support Donald Trump, a very similar sort of just just backlash against elites and governing institutions and particularly the media, intellectuals, uh, and others others like that. Um, and then, on the other side, of course, we have another sort of uh, not quite full polarization. Well, I guess it would be, though, I think particularly of, uh, of equity-seeking groups in Canada, I think particularly of race, particularly for Black Canadians. I think of sort of the last couple of years of developments uh, there in race and, of course, in, in Indigenous affairs uh, with Indigenous Canadians uh, trying to really uh, claim, claim space in the conversation. So we've got these different elements, uh, again, some, some of which you see in other countries as well, um, really all increasingly polarizing against each other. So to get back to how I described polarization, it's not just that sort of they, they think that they're right. It's often they're actively fighting each other and they're feeding off each other in a way, uh, trying, to, trying to say that they have the truth, that they have the facts. Uh, the other side is just a fringe minority or completely wrong, anti-science, whatever line you want to use there. Um, and uh, it's increasingly a vicious circle. 
and it, it concerns me. It's not as bad as in the United States, uh, but certainly here in Canada, and something it's something different than what we had. It's actually it is partly regional. A lot of the trucker convoy came out of Western Canada, but uh, it's something relatively new in Canada because historically, region and language have been a big polarization. But so we're now like other countries and having this sort of what I'll call elite populist divide, as well as uh, equity seeking groups also trying to trying to have have their space as well. So let me ask you, though, because you mentioned, uh, uh, well, all the groups that you've mentioned, um, a lot of them might say, so what about polarization? Um, The fact is that, and I think, you know, you mentioned equity seeking groups, they are looking for systemic change. uh, And systemic change is going to upset people, it's going to upset those at the top, it's going to cause, uh, you know, discomfort, and there is going to be some reaction against it. And, you know, someone who's who's advocating for that is going to say, yeah, it's to be expected, there's going to be polarization. Others, and I think of the many, many people, certainly that I met in my travels, who, who were very, very upset with the truckers convoy, for example, would say they're simply wrong. Um, their views on vaccines, their views on public health issues, uh, even their political views, their manifestos about having the governor general dismiss the uh, governor, I think all the governments, the governor general said, you know, they, they, they made fun of them and they are wrong. We are right. So how do you respond to that where people say, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't care if it's polarized. Uh, my views are polarizing people. The fact is that I'm right. Yeah. I mean, that's the risk. And, you know, I think in any, any reasonable people are always going to disagree. I mean, there's, there's, we're not going to have consensus on the big policy issues of the day. There's always going to be, I think, different points of view, different inter- and different interpretations. Um, the way I said, maybe to feed up what you, you said there is that what we're seeing here now is like increasingly people feel not only that they are right, but that the other side is, is deeply wrong. Just everything about them is completely wrong and all their ideas are, are invalid. And that seems to almost be increasing there. The people feel not just simply that, that, that they're right, they're the right ideas, but that the other side just has no validity. In fact, we need to sort of stamp out their ideas or completely cut them out of the conversation because they just there's, there's no validity what they say. And that's why I said, again, it gets back to my point about polarization feeding off of each other and stuff. Not that you're right. You've got to show the other side is completely uh, wrong. And, and that, that concerns me, uh, I think, because it, it just it leads to further divides, further disagreement. Uh, it leads to more incoherent public policy, to be frank, because things are always swinging back and forth between extremes. Um, and ultimately, I think it's just it's not good for society. It's not. I think we can, as I said, we in our society, people are always going to disagree. Reasonable people will disagree on all the public issues of the day. We'll always have that there. But we need to have some sort of respect. We need to have some sort of um, willingness to accept that others can reasonably disagree. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily deeply wrong, they, you know, that their ideas need to be stamped into the ground. And, and we're seeing so little of that respect now. We're seeing so little of that, that respect for the other, other side. That, oh, you know, I, I, I have these views, but you know, the majority feels a different way. I'm, I'm willing to go along with the majority and stuff. We're seeing less and less of that. And that's, that's the troubling for democracy. Because you know, democracy, which has different uh, interpretations, though, is really about uh, the idea that there is uh, that not just majority rules, but that there's a respect for the process. There's a respect, a mutual respect for the system that we have. And we're seeing less and less of that. Um, and what I find most concerning is just we're not not just we don't have respect for each other, but we're really not having the same conversations. 
about about what is right. And the question of what is right? Well, depends how you define right. And, and that's thing where we're really breaking down, that people are looking at the same phenomena, the same things, like the trucker convoy, and they're seeing very different things. Um, it really struck me, you know, we keep talking about the trucker convoy. I, I live in Ottawa, and so I had occasion to uh, go downtown a number of times just to, just to walk around. That's all I did. I, I just walked around, observed myself, and, and you know, I, I, I formed certain impressions. Uh, I'm not going to share those impressions. I'm simply going to say that then I would go back and I'd read media and reports and social media other, about other, and other people's impressions, which were different than, than what I saw. Uh, and that just gets to the fact that people can say that, see the same thing. I think people saw in that trucker convoy really what they wanted to see. Um, uh, and it led itself to all sorts of different interpretations there. Um, and so that, that, again, just to get back to this issue about, you know, why does polarization matter? It's because when we just don't have the same, we don't have basic respect for each other, when we're not having the same conversations, when we don't, um, um, uh, when, we, when we, well, when we don't um, recognize that there may be different valid interpretations of things and facts, um, that's all very concerning. And I guess the last point I make, I think particularly, uh, we can, keep going with this is social media certainly fuels a lot of this because there's people don't have a common information diet anymore they're not reading the same newspapers watching the same tv news broadcasts they're getting the information they want to have particularly from social media and that just fuels their their assumption that they're completely right the facts are so clear and anyone out that believes differently is is deeply wrong not just not just a little bit wrong deeply wrong and i i only see it really getting more entrenched that way and that that's why, to me, polarization is a concern. But I guess, you know, just to uh, to continue this 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 line of thought and I mean, maybe move to, you know, are there are there are there any magical solutions? I guess there are no magical solutions, but what some of the solutions might be to mitigate it is is this sense that, um, OK, I will, you know, cut a bit of slack to my opponents, but they're they you know, they're misinformed. It's misinformation. Of course, the facts are on my side uh, when it comes to COVID-19. I mean, COVID-19 is is such a fascinating example because it's not, people say this isn't about opinion. This is about what, what medical experts are saying. And, you know, you, the person on the other side, you're, you're denying the medical experts. And then, of course, they, uh, they come out with, uh, you know, a obscure physician or something who, who, who backs up theirs. And, and then it becomes this, this sort of free for all. And I guess, um, you know, part of it is how do we, how do we deal with, with this issue of facts? Because, you know, on the one hand, there is so much misinformation out there. There is this whole phenomenon of, of, of fake news, but at the same time, as, as you point out, we sometimes put forward our views with this, this degree of certainty, which, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, I mean, I don't know if I'm that certain about anything the way people speak, but you know, how do you, it's sort of my experts are better than your experts or you have no experts or I, I, you know, all that keeps going through my mind are the voices out there that would say none of this matters because I'm right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem with that. I think when it comes to facts, I mean, you know, some, most facts can be objective facts, but facts almost always have context. There's always sort of more, you know, what what is the context of the fact, or how does it matter? Um, and evidence can often shift in things. So to to, to think about COVID, um, um, as you said, I mean, there's been a pretty broad consensus among 
public health experts and epidemiologists about 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 COVID and COVID trends. But you're right, certainly there are dissenters, people with medical degrees and, and PhDs in the field and stuff, people with some legitimate expertise uh, with very different interpretations and stuff. And, um, you know, they're outweighed by the balance of opinion out there, but, you know, they, they claim their own expertise and stuff. And then what people do, of course, is then they grab on the expertise that fits their their values and ideas like that. That's why I, get, I, I, said, I think I said earlier that people sort of have particular um, arguments and, and then they look for the facts to support them. And that's what we saw certainly with COVID. People that, you know, didn't like vaccines or didn't like other measures and stuff, they shopped around to find the facts that they wanted uh, uh, to support it. And I think also, I think of with COVID, of course, you know, the scientific opinion did did shift in various ways. You recall, like it took it took uh, it took a month or two to realize just how important masks were in the spread of COVID. It used to be, you know, if you recall, you know, uh, back in March and April 2020, we were all washing our hands like like crazy, or you know, wiping down our groceries and stuff there because at the time it was thought that you know that uh, COVID was mainly uh, uh, done uh, through surfaces, and of course we then it was fully understood. No, this is the airborne. Uh, uh, Ill, uh, 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 that, uh, virus and and masks came in and that's that's one basic thing like that but that's an example where you know the scientific consensus did shift over time and that's the sort of thing that often now is used by masking of their opponents saying that oh well they, they didn't they only changed their mind on this masks after a while and stuff like that you know so the people are grab, grabbing the facts and things and the fact that scientific evidence did shift the scientific opinion did change uh and you can use you can look at a lot of other examples of covid like that you could other examples uh, climate change is one i find interesting where um you know climate change is <laughs> certainly widely accepted by the scientific scientific community but it's exact parameters exactly how it's exact effects you know there's some um there's different interpretations there and again climate change skeptics and grab on on those exceptions and stuff there so my, my point being that i think if we try and oversell facts and you know the evidence and scientific opinion stuff we i think sometimes if it's oversold too much it's 100 true 100 reliable well well no i mean the evidence will change so it's maybe it's only 90 percent reliable which is still pretty good but it can be oversold that way i think that's a problem with a lot of facts is I uh, said they, there's always a context, and if we rely too much on like these are the facts, and there's no, there's nothing to discuss. These are the facts. That's it. Um, then we're not again, we're not recognizing that there there are different interpretations. There can be context. Uh, there's other things going going on. Uh, that and and none of us, as you said, none of us are 100 right by by any means. But we often think you know, we see the facts. We don't see any other way to interpret them, and so we're convinced that we're right. And again, everyone else is is wrong not just wrong but deeply wrong because look at that it's right in front of them. how can they not understand it and that's that's what polarized polarization is all about so i've got the tough question for you how do we what do we do about it and i guess by we there's there, there's there's different categories so maybe i'll ask in a general sense but then then maybe we can explore some of the different players Sure. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think that to, 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 to mitigate polarization, I think one of the basic things that we can all do at all levels is, I think, to understand and recognize that we're not having the same conversations, that, that we're making assumptions about, like, others' core values, what's important to people or not. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, very good social science research these days on just how different people's core values can be, like what's most important to them, whether it's sort of you know, personal security, prosperity, different, there's, you know, people have different values like that. But then they assume everyone else has the same values. And then that leads off to a lot of arguments. How can you possibly support this? It goes against my 
core values. So I think understanding, recognizing that we are different and, and we're going to have different conversations about, about things. We're going to look at the same thing, the, the same set of facts, perhaps, um, and and may have different interpretations, have, have different views. And, and we can't simply persuade each other by by hitting each other over the head with what we what we think is the logic. Um, I think I... I, 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 I've done this and other people do this, but sort of you, you, you want to forward an article or a link or something, which to you is just so clear, so clearly lays out the facts, so obvious, and you send it off to people you disagree with. And you say, just read this one article that will show you exactly the real thing like that there, like that. And, you know, they may not read it or they will. And like, when people send those to me, I, I, I try to read them, but I think, well, <laughs> you know, for various reasons, well, I, this is not this is not the one thing that's going to convince me. But the people send those in all sincerity because they think like if you just read this one article, you'll understand everything like that. That's not the case, and it's because, as I said, you know, we all have we've got different values, we've got different filters, and I, I think those are legitimate. It's not that we're we're wrongheaded. It's not that we are just you know, um, uh, you know <laughs> that we we need we need to change our our basic value systems and, st- and stuff. It's often that we we've, we've got different approaches there like that, and so. Um, so that's what I think that we we all we all can really really do in that regard is try to recognize we're going to have different opinions here, and just because I feel that I'm right and I'm pretty confident I'm right and that this is very important this is you know for for public health for things we have to do it this way and stuff like that, um, there's going to be others that, that disagree and I may disagree with them quite strongly and my, I may think for example that you know that that you know their practices for example not being vaccinated not having masks and to me that's that's threatening public health, but I, I have to accept to some extent that their interpretation is different and, and they're not, I'm not going to convince them by just slamming them over the head with what I consider to be the facts. And, and that's tough. That's, that's tough to do to assume that, you know, that to not just think if you just overwhelm people with enough facts, they will agree with what you believe because that, that's not how it works, unfortunately. Well, let me, let me uh, uh, pull in a, a more specific player here in the media. It's interesting the amount of debate that you hear about the idea of a balanced story. And the the usual view that's put forward is you don't need to be balanced anymore in media because I shouldn't say anymore, but you don't you don't need to, to always be pushing for that balance because if most uh scientists believe in climate change you don't need to have that that rogue scientist voice if most public health experts are talking about vaccines you don't need uh uh, someone who's uh anti-vaccine a a physician that's anti-vaccine that sort of thing and uh, you know that i think plays out over and over again that the media have a certain view on things and it's presented and as to those other voices um we're not going to give them airtime we're not going to have them spread their misunderstanding or their misinformation and cause misunderstanding. And you know what? I actually have some sympathy for that view, I guess, as a, as, as a good middle of the road, uh, you know, small L, large L, liberal, whatever I am. But at the same time, I worry about what it's doing in terms of polarization. The fact that uh, uh, for a significant cross-section of Canadians, they're not seeing anything that they believe in uh, out there and mm-hmm. sort of the mainstream newscast. I don't know your sense. Yeah, I think I, th- I mean when we think of the the mainstream media, as we'll call it, or traditional media of that. Um, I mean, I, I, I I'm like you. I, I have some sympathy for them. I think some of their problems are self inflicted. But among other things, um, you know, I say first that journalism has always tried to present itself as sort of that that balanced voice, like that we just try and report the facts. 
Uh, but as I just said, facts can be contested. Um, and there can always be issues about sort of how we have a balanced story like that, you know, that, uh, that. And so I think some people have tried to have balanced stories and things where let's say that 80% of the population believes one thing, but 20% believes the other. Well, you have a quote from each and that. So is that, is that balanced or are you giving too much weight for the 20% or minority view like that? That's an issue there. But I think we're generally for, for media generally these, these days, um, you know, it's, it's frankly, it's, it's a struggling business. Uh, it's a business where you have to really uh, try and figure out how can you, how can you drive, clicks or, you know, if you can get traditional subscriptions or viewers there. Uh, and so there's always a, a, it's always a tough challenge to figure out, you know, should we try and do a sort of what we consider to be a traditionally balanced story uh, or do we try and play to the, uh, the emotions of our, of our readers or listeners? Uh, because we, we need them. We like we're running a business here. We, we, we need them. And I think, I think the, the media, I think has, has, a, has a, a tough challenge uh, there. I think, you know, that's a, to some degree, I think it's self-inflicted. I think that journalists uh, have often oversold their own objectivity, the idea that they, they're just there, they're just there to report the story. Well, no, they've, they've got their own filters. They've got their own biases going on there. Um, but it's, it's a challenge. I think in, particularly in this, in this environment, when you look at how, um, uh, the, again, go back to the trucker convoy, the way that it was covered uh, by mainstream media in, in Canada, I think that they, I think that they tried to do a reasonable job of, of trying to report what's going on in Ottawa and Windsor and elsewhere. Um, they uh, trying to characterize you know, who's there, who's being involved there. But as you know, of course, particularly in downtown Ottawa um, and well, and elsewhere as well, um, a lot of mainstream media uh, got a lot of um, uh, sometimes physical attacks from the protesters themselves, which I think is sort of ironic because I, I certainly saw people complain the media was not going and talking to the protesters themselves enough, uh, but they got a rough ride sometimes when they, when they were down there. So all I have to say is that like, I'm the media is certainly a contributor here. Um, I'm not sure it's entirely um, that we can blame them entirely for it uh, or that there's another sort of obvious path that they could do. Um, Cause that gets the other issue of who's consuming the media. And as I said, mainstream media is by and large a, a, a declining business uh, because people want to consume their own specialized media. Uh, through through their own social media, through their Facebook or Twitter feeds or what have you there, uh, and then and, and picking up sort of more alternative media sources there that tell people what what they what they want to hear. And to me, that's 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 the bigger challenge in media is that people themselves are not see, they're not really seeking out truth, or at least truth in a way that, that I'd like to call it there. They're seeking out again the facts and interpretations that they want, things that will um, further reinforce their view that they are right and the other side is is wrong is deeply wrong. So it's means it's a vicious circle. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of great solutions for the traditional media. Um, for social media, I would say I, I think that I do have some things for the and I, I don't I don't think we can necessarily control big social media companies that much. I'm not sure how much we can do. They do some there, but I think it's something that all of us, and certainly anyone who's on social media, I think it's something that we can do ourselves is to um, to try and resist polarization, is to, to try and really sort of um, hold back on that, to sort of, you know, to, to not post in anger is a, is a line I've seen it a few times like that. And I think that's something that's really hard for us all to do because we feel very strongly about, about things. And so we, we want to post and circulate things that reinforce our views. And we often do so with a bit of anger. I said earlier that, uh, that idea of sending an article to, to, to someone saying, like, just read this and you'll see. You'll, you'll see. And often think we post things with the same ways. Just just see it. Just learn like that there. 
And then often just, that just feeds the flames. That, again, just feeds the polarization going on. So one thing I certainly, I try to myself, and I always think anyone, anyone who's on social media, certainly, or email or any sort of media really like that, is trying to feed the flames of polarization yourself. I just sort of, you know, by forwarding stuff that you believe like that, that you want to hammer up people other, over the head on. Um, instead, you know, try and hold back. Try not, try not to feed the flames like that and try and contribute to, to at least some understanding that there are different views out there. There's different um, uh, interpretations of the facts there. And, and generally, you know, yelling and hitting people over the head does not convince them to change their mind. Well, maybe that's a good uh, uh, yelling and hitting people over the head is a, is a good segue to my uh, next and perhaps final category in terms of, of how do we deal with this? What about our politicians who well, are known to be uh, uh, hitting hitting each other? Well, maybe not literally hitting each other over the head, but certainly rhetorically hitting each other over the head. Well, that's I mean, that's very tough because for politicians, um, like pol- politics is a, is, is a competitive game. All the time, I mean, you, you, you know, you're you're an elected official. You know about that. There's always an, an other side. I mean, our, our our parliamentary system basically exists on polarization. That to, if you for you to win, the other side has to lose in some way. So that's not a. And ideally, it's a system of respect. It is a. I'll call it a game for this purpose. Is the idea that everyone sort of agrees on the rules that's going on, and you compete as best you can. Um, but the. Um, the reality is, again, in this polarized environment, there are a lot of incentives for politicians to exploit the polarization for short-term advantage. Because let's face it, you don't need you don't need to convince 100% of the people for the votes. You want to have 40% or whatever there like that. And, and that's something I think we certainly see, uh, particularly in federal politics these days. I would say uh, certainly both uh, Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals and the, and the Conservatives uh, uh, um, are really, I think, exploiting polarization for their own means, trying to really uh, show show their supporters just how strongly they're against the other side uh, and really, I think, playing to, playing to their existing supporters and not really not reaching out much or trying to convince others there. Uh, I think you saw them in the trucker convoy for sure, where the liberals and conservatives really kind of each played to, I think, one, one side or one perspective. Um, and I mean, I, I can't really blame them in some ways because that's definitely their short-term advantage to do so. That's that's how you win votes. That's how you win seats. It's certainly how you raise money, and fundraising is a big big part of it there. Um, so again, I, as with the media, I, I can see why why people do th- things they do. Why they frankly often can exploit polarization sometimes because it, it suits their short-term um, uh, interests. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a tough thing to ask politicians. Again, your former politician, John. Um, it's, it's tough to ask them sort of take the high road to say, let's then do something that's higher than, you know, trying to, you know, uh, uh, beat, beat the other side, uh, try and try and be, you know, above things, try and bring people together. Um, that's challenging, I think, to ask politicians to do. But it is, I think, what, what we need. And I think, again, as citizens, we need to figure. We need to figure. How can we support that? Just as with media, we need to try and how can we cons- how how can we support uh, a, a wide range of media? How can we not feed the flames in that way? In the same way, in politics, we need to ask how can we have uh, leaders who may have strong convictions. That's absolutely fine. To have strong convictions and views, but don't just feed off the polarization to show how the other side is so deeply wrong in a way that just just gets people hyped up more. Uh, and again, I think is ultimately bad for the country and bad for democracy. Well, I want to turn to to an area of common interest, the, the role of faith in faith communities. And I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest, the uh, 
Trucker's Convoy, uh, there was an underlying current of evangelical Christianity amongst a lot of the protesters. People wrote about it. People commented on it. People mm -hmm. see faith as a polarizing force in Canada. And uh, at the same time, and, and certainly a, something, a thesis that I put forward, I, I actually think faith could have a role in trying to bring people together. So where do you stand in terms of, of the role that, that faith is playing in terms of this polarization? And can it uh, address some of the, uh, the issues that we've talked about today? Sure, yeah. Well, I, think, I mean, faith, uh, faith groups and religions can have a big role in polarization. And I think in both ways, they can certainly um, feed polarization uh, but they can also uh, try and address it, try and heal it, try and reduce it in some ways there. Um, I think, and, and to me, that's, and I mean, that's all sides. It's not just sort of um, uh, sort of more conservative groups or just Christian groups. It can be, other. I think, all sorts of faiths going on, on there. Um, I, I, I start with a broad line that I think, like, Faith, faith and religious groups tend to use the language of morality often, or very sort of, of you know of, of moral there. And to me, I find that, I find that problematic for political deliberation. You know, what what is moral? And it gets back to what I was saying earlier about, about facts. What are the facts? I think you know what what is moral? What are trade offs? They're doing different morals. I, I don't think it's necessarily as clear as people say it is. Even but always, even though when people talk about morality, they have a very, very clear idea of, of how, how they understand morality, what morality means, and and often like how could anyone feel differently than this? So the user I think I think faith groups, in fact, I would say, and I'd say this is this is the case not thinking not just for conservative groups. I say for a lot of more progressive liberal groups the same way. They'll often use morality uh, to to support certain political agendas and things. There, um, environment and climate change might be a good example. That it's a moral issue, uh, and I can I can see that it is. I agree, but I mean I think uh, others may disagree. And in the same way, more conservative groups will argue the same way. They think that this is a moral issue and stuff like that. And there are different kinds of morality, different conceptions of morality. I think not necessarily. I think they can all be legitimate, but but they're different. And that's again, I think faith groups are using uh, the often sometimes common language uh, in a way though that it doesn't actually mean the the same thing there. Um, and so certainly, I think um, it's a, it's it's a challenging thing for religious and faith groups and polarization because if you if you uh, if you're active in a um, a faith community, uh, if it's important to you, then uh, generally you're going to have some strong views. You're going to have some strong views about your religious beliefs uh, and often about others' religious beliefs and things like that. Uh, like that, the whole point is to have some have some have some strong convictions, and so that can lead, certainly lead to po political polarization more generally because you got these strong views often, and and you often feel that you've got the views others don't there and stuff there. Um, and that's that's a challenge, and of course you you can find many many examples of of of, of that where uh, religion religion and political polarization go hand in hand, not just in Canada but in other societies uh, uh, as as well. There, and that's 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 a big challenge. I think even the like going to the trucker convoy. I mean, I, I certainly found the religious references in the trucker convoy quite interesting. I mean, walking around, you saw lots of signs and things there. I had some conversations with people there. Um, it struck me that like. Religion was not an overt part of it. It was, it was there in science, something like that there, um, like that. It wasn't a religiously driven movement per se, but it was clear, and the way I phrased it is that there was clearly a lot of respect for a certain type of religion there, for evangelical uh, Christians. I, I, I had a line in the media, I think as good as that, uh, to the effect that I'm not sure that, I'm not sure how many people in the trucker convoy went to church themselves, 
but they, they probably think it's a good idea if everyone else went to church. <laughs> it's to say they have, they have respect for church. They have respect for, for, and I should say particularly for conservative evangelical churches that way. Um, so that was my sense. Uh, that was sort of my sense of, 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 of things there. And um, when you think about how, like, I think more generally about the pandemic in the last couple of years, I think, I think particularly of Canadian evangelicals like that. And, and I have to say, I'm, I'm optimistic about it because there, there certainly were some churches in Canada that were very against um, COVID measures. Uh, and, you know, they were, they were in the news. They were very defiant. Some got, got charged uh, and things there. Um, to me, though, the story, though, was how many evangelical churches weren't in the news like that and compared to the United States where you, you see uh, American evangelicals were very strongly uh, against COVID. And that's, I think, pretty across the board and quite striking. In Canada, I think the, the big news is that it was just, it really was just a few churches that really made the news. And a lot of other churches, um, evangelical churches were quite compliant with, with social distancing measures there. Whether or not they supported them, I'm not sure. And I have to say, just in my own private conversations with people there, I was struck that, that, that a, there were a lot of evangelical pastors, I think, for the last two years in Canada, that were really carefully walking the line. And I think we're doing, frankly, a very good job of um, trying to manage some very volatile congregations, some of whom were quite anti-masking, anti-vaccine, etc., uh, some of which aren't. Um, and, and, the, and the churches had to you know, try and put a lid on that. They had to uh, comply with laws and 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 uh, about when they could have churches and capacity limits and distancing and all that stuff there. Uh, and I think a lot of I think a lot of evangelical leaders in Canada I think actually did a really good job of I think trying to reduce polarization, trying to recognize that there's different views here, and and uh, and doing their best to think to not necessarily make people all agree with each other, but at least I think um, trying to make people respect each other, to go along with public health laws, whether you like them or not, um, and to have and have some respect for each other. So to me, like that, and that's that's kind of the unspoken story, I think, of even of Canadian evangelical Christians in, in the pandemic, is that they weren't like the Americans. There, there's a few exceptions. And of course, you go back to the trucker convoy, there's certainly a lot of religious language there. But I think, again, and this is, this is often the tricky thing to, 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 to analyze is you look for what's not there, what, like what, what's not happening, the voices that are not speaking out. And I think that's, that's significant there. And that, that leads me to sort of a larger point then about sort of broad sort of faith and politics and polarization there. I think in a, um, in a plural society like Canada, I think, you know, the, the uh, I think wise and durable religious communities, uh, they're, they're accustomed to, uh, to existing in a pluralist uh, society and to feeling that that they may have the truth, they may have the right answers, but not everyone agrees. And, so, you know, and they've got to figure out how to coexist in, in that society with, with others, including other faith groups uh, and people that have no faith, faith, faith at all. And, and they figure out how to coexist uh, in a way that doesn't sacrifice their, their convictions. And I think in, uh, in Canada, I think we, we it's difficult in Canada because we have we have the United States right beside us, and we see in the United States some very deep uh, polarization that's deeply religious. I think more than ever. I mean, the strongest supporters of Donald Trump certainly are evangelical Christians, and and we've seen this really for decades in American politics, where religion is one of the prime dividers in in, in American politics. In Canada, we don't have it's, it's it's there, but not to the same extent. And it's, I think we can have different interpretations there. As I said earlier, you can look at facts of different interpretations. This is a good example. You could say, well, we're, we're not nearly as divided as the Americans, which is absolutely true, I think, or that Canadian evangelicals are not nearly as, as 
sort of militant and, and demanding sort of, you know, that, that their way is the only way in public policy. We don't have that in Canada. Um, but there, there is some of that for sure. So you can, you can flip around the interpretation the other way and say, well, there are certainly signs of, of that. There is, I think, a fair amount of opposition to um, uh, COVID measures in Canadian evangelical communities, uh, that which personally gives me concern. But that's also, that's to me, that's, that's, that's the nature of, 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 uh, of, of, this, of this community. And, I said, and to go back to what I said earlier, I think that Canadian evangelical leaders, I think, by and large, actually think did a good job of trying to not fuel the polarization, trying to uh, keep, keep a lid on things. And to me, that's sort of the lesson think, for, for faith communities more generally in, in Canada is to figure out how to exist in this polarized society, in this, sorry, in this pluralist society, how to try and bring people together rather than fueling um, anger and differences while remaining true to one's convictions. Um, and to go back to what I said right at the beginning of this, this answer, um, to not use moral language as much, because, because to me, overusing sort of morality as a term, like to me, that's as problematic as talk about the facts, because there's different interpretations of morality. There's different parameters of what's going on. And I think, again, I think all, I think all faith groups uh, sometimes... It's, they're they're interested in faith and morality. It's very important to them, but they can often err in, again into the same idea of saying that that their ideas are completely right, everyone else is completely wrong, and 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 you have to have to fight it out and you feed off each other again. And so, so I hope hopefully overall that's an optimistic answer to the idea of, of whether faith communities can can help um, contribute to healing and polarization there. Um, but it's it's a long road, and, and again, it's, it's challenging. I'm not going to I'm not going to claim it's it's super easy. No, and I think you know I, I can't agree with you more that uh, this is this is a very very troubling time for Canada. But I I appreciate your optimism, and uh, I appreciate I think the potential for all of us and including faith groups and people of faith to contribute to 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 doing some healing that that needs to be done uh, here in Canada. And you know I've uh, we could keep going. I think we have so many. Uh, uh, areas to explore, but, uh, you know, I, I've covered a, a great deal of, uh, territory in, in today's interview. And I, I really want to thank you for, uh, uh, giving of your time and, and sharing your views, sharing your optimism, sharing, I think a bit of a hard look at, uh, at what's happening and giving us all something to think about. And also thank you for the work that you're doing in this field. I think it's, it's very, very important. Uh, religion is part of a person's identity and, uh, a lot of folks involved in politics, it's it's a big part of their identity and understanding how uh, it relates to their work and how it relates to their role as our leaders, I think is very important. So thank you for, for joining us today and for, for sharing your thoughts. You've given us uh, uh, some, I think, lots to think about, but also uh, a message of optimism that uh, as we move forward, there, 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 there may be some ways we can deal with all this. So thanks for joining us here. Well, thanks very much for having, having me. It's great to be, be part of this podcast and uh, great, great to have this conversation. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this edition of The Moment, a production of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, the founding institution of Wilfrid Laurier University, located in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Visit our website, publicethics.ca, for resources and more information on other podcasts. The technical producer of today's recording was Jackson Del Cero, with support from Alex Kinsella. Creative Commons music was provided by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thanks for joining us.